We had a studio. This now neither one of us. I think I was maybe I was teaching. I think I was teaching at the time. He was teaching the Holy Redeemer. The Holy Redeemer Christian Academy, and he was playing at church. Yep, right. Playing at Greater New Birth. Greater New Birth. So he got a. We were in the studio. We had we we had an apartment. Right. We knew we had a studio, but we had an apartment, and that apartment was the studio. It was on Servite. Y'all know Servite? I think it's Village or something like that. We had a, a two-bedroom apartment in Servite. And what was hilarious to me was we thought we had a studio studio. For real, for real. <laughs> like, you couldn't tell us we didn't have a big boy studio till we went to a big boy studio. And got fixed. <laughs> and was like, yo, what was we doing? We had, had a computer and everything. So we, we're in the studio working on the track or something. Sean phone ring. And Sean, I'm going to let you take it from there. What happened? So my boy Rex Hardy, he's a drummer from Chicago. He had called me. He was like, hey, man, I got a gig. He said, uh, only thing is you leave on Monday. That was, it was Saturday when I got the phone call. And I'm thinking I was getting ready to go out with like a gospel artist because that was, that was it for me. Like I didn't think it was attainable to play for secular artists. And when he told me who it was, I lost it. It was Dave Hollister. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I was a medical records clerk at Columbia Family Care Center. So when I got that phone call, I called my boss and told her, because she knew what I wanted to do for a living. And I told her, I said, well, my time has come. I can't put in two weeks. I quit right now. And I have <laughs> not looked back since. Yeah. yeah. Show some love for that, man, because that takes... That takes courage right there, right? That takes extreme courage. And one thing about it is a lot of times we don't like to take risks because we're scared of what might not happen instead of what might happen. Now, had Sean not taken, had the courage to uh, leave his job, he wouldn't have traveled. I don't know how many countries do you think you've touched on? Roughly. About 30. 30 countries. Like I, I put it this way, I'm on my second passport right now. See what I'm saying? Yeah. Now, had he not left his job, he may have touched a couple, you know, how you know how you go on vacation? You, who, who all go on vacation to different countries, right? That That's that's their... Uh, that's, that's, that's a day at the office for me. Going to Paris, going to London, going to Germany. I'm going to work. Right. So, let's take it back, Sean. Okay. You started off little little youngster. And I remember you, I never I didn't remember Sean as a, a guitar player. I remember Sean as a drummer. Absolutely. So talk to us, take us from your drummer days to your uh guitar days, and then we're gonna talk about you as a producer. Got it. So I think for every African American kid, if you if you're off into instruments, your first instrument is more than likely gonna be drums. That's what it was for me. I grew up in a family of musicians. My grandfather was a pastor and bishop. My mother was the pianist. And uh, me and the host of my cousins, we played drums. Well, my oldest cousin, who's the bass player for Eric Benet now, he stopped playing drums and learned how to play the bass. So I was the lead drummer in charge. And um, my two younger cousins wanted to learn how to play too. So I was like, I'm tired of sharing the drums. <laughs> I got tired of sharing the drums with my cousin, so I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. So um, I went to Rockford because I was born in Rockford, Illinois. My birth father gave me my first guitar, but my grandfather uh, showed me my first three chords. And after that, I was hooked. So I suffered for my craft. I say this a lot, and people be like, what do you mean when you suffer for your craft? Because... At the time, I was listening to Hot 102 radio station. And I would close my bedroom door at night and sit on the edge of my bed and practice what I heard on the radio. And my mother would tell me bedtime is at 8.30. Well, I'm up way past 8.30 learning how to play the guitar. My mother would catch me and I would get a whooping every time. So if my mother was here right now, she would tell you, yeah, he suffered for his craft. I really did. I started playing the guitar at the age of 12. Um, My cousins and I had a quartet gospel group called the Young Gospel Travelers. 
I really started, you know, deepening my love for being a guitarist. So I started listening to cats like Stevie Ray Vaughan, Jimi Hendrix, B.B. King, Freddie King, Slash from Guns N' Roses, Phil Collins from Def Leppard. And it just was like a rabbit hole. I'm just, I'm exploring and learning about different guitars. And before I knew it, I was a professional guitarist playing around here in the city. Um, I serviced churches like uh, Greater New Birth. I played for Holy Recovery, played at Holy Redeemer. I'm currently now uh, over 10 years at Christian Faith Fellowship Church, but also service bands, uh, groups, Growing Nation. Uh, I sat in, I was with uh, Cigarette Break, which was with the group Back Black Elephant. Um, wow, I, I want to say I played with Jersey Ave a few times. Yeah. I did that. Lattimore Brothers. The Lattimore Brothers. As a matter of fact, me and Chad go so far back, he was in a band called New Creation. And I played guitar with New Creation. So yeah, so it it opened up a door for me to do what it is that I'm doing now. Again, I didn't think it was attainable to do. So I'm working with Chad in the studio. I was one of his first producers for Big Sound. And um, I got the phone call because Summerfest 2002, I met Rex and Nissan Stewart, who was one of Puffy's hitmen as a you know, producer. And um, we all had hit it off. And I was trying to make a name for myself in Chicago. And that's when Rex, who's from Chicago, plugged me with the Dave Hollister gig, which was a snowball effect. So from Dave Hollister, I did Kelly Price. We did 106 in Park. We were the first live band to play 106 in Park. From Kelly Price, I did Glenn Lewis. From Glenn Lewis, I went back to Kelly Price. I worked with Tyler Perry. He wrote a play for Kelly Price called Why Did I Get Married, which is a movie now. So I was the first band, first guitarist to do that play with Tyler Perry. Um, I ventured off, did 112. I played for Jagged Edge. And then um, everything came to a screeching halt. And I was back at home playing at church and then um, in the studio with Chad. And that's when I get the phone call for the Dave Hollister gig. Right. I think I'm up to speed now. No. Then I get the phone call from Rex again saying like, yo, Mary J. Blige is getting rid of her old band and she's hiring a new band. And she's never really had a guitarist before. So you about to get a phone call from this dude called Huggy. Huggy calls me, said, yo. Mary's putting a brand new band together. Um, rehearsals are in New York, so it really wasn't. It was an audition, but not really an audition because right. this is what it was. So I get to New York. Mary and her husband at the time was there. We ran like maybe five songs. Mary asked, like, you want the gig? And I was like, absolutely. And that's when everything started taking effect for me. So for Mary, then I did Angie Stone from Angie Stone. I did John Legend. I did Jill Scott, I did Jay-Z, I did Lil Wayne, and I'm back with Mary. That's what's up. Now, it's one he forgot, because I remember I went to to uh, rehearsal with him. We had so much fun. Avant. Avant. I forgot about Avant. <laughs> yeah. Yes, sir. You went, yes, sir. You, he, like, I went to rehearsal with Avant. He was on tour with somebody. But So now you, you're doing your thing on the road. Now, watch how this works. The reason why I had him explain that for a reason. So he did all those different artists. And at the time, we were we were trying to come up as producers and writers and things of that nature. So um, as as Sean progresses, you forgot John Legend too, by the way. I don't know how I'm you sorry, John, John Legend, because yeah. you came to the show and I did with John. Exactly. Yeah. So um, as as a guitarist, when you're on the road, you got ample time because you drop when you're on tour. You got you riding on the bus, you making beats on the bus, you doing all type of stuff. And uh, I think Sean was on a tour with Lil Wayne. And he, 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 they had downtime and he called me and he kicking it. He like, yo, he, and I am saying, you know, drink this. And I'm like, you kicking it, you know, like regular kicking it. He like, and he's telling me, he's like, big bro, when I come home, we got to do some tracks for this artist Wayne got, young dude from Toronto that Wayne got. Yes, he the next big thing. Now, mind you, this, nobody know who, who he is at this point. And he like, bro, he was just playing me some stuff he did with Trey Songs. It's crazy. Like, bro, we got to do some work, whatever. And I'm like, all right, cool. It's whatever. Let's set it up. Whatever, whatever. Whole time you on tour with Drake, who is the biggest artist in the world right now. Drake, 
Nicki Minaj. It was a whole Young Money crew. And what was so dope about that tour that I did with Wayne, because it was the, the, at the time it was called the I Am Music Tour. So it was Wayne, Young Money, uh, Jim Class Heroes, Gorilla Zoe, Carrie Hilson, and Keisha Cole. I got a chance to hang out with Wayne because Wayne likes to play the guitar. Right. So I'm on Wayne's tour bus with him sometimes. And he had a music studio on his tour bus. Right. So we were out on that tour. I'm trying to remember what year. Whatever year October's very own came out, I was around while they was working on that album. And that's when I called see my brother. I was like, yo, we need to get on this. We need to get on Drake stuff. We need to get on Nicki Minaj stuff. Like I was, I was amped. I was ready to come home and work. Right, right. And mind you, obviously our production skills weren't up to par for like a T minus in them. So obviously, <laughs> so obviously we didn't make the project, as y'all can tell. Exactly. <laughs> but, but the thing was, we at least had opportunity to make the project. Now, because we weren't in, on point with that, as far as production level, we had the opportunity to make that happen. So one thing about opportunities, my, my brother uh, Will Roundtree said, don't, people are poor for a reason. Because what poor stands for is passing up passing opportunities repeatedly. It's passing up opportunities repeatedly, which means you continue to get opportunity, continue to get opportunity, continue to get opportunity, and you keep passing them up. You're not taking advantage of taking advantage of the opportunities. It's like it's passing up, it's passing something, passing over opportunities repeatedly. That's what it is. Passing over opportunities repeatedly. So to me. That was us not really getting what we thought we would get, but we didn't pass the opportunity up. So what it did was it, it allowed us to sharpen our tools. If you get what I'm saying? Absolutely. It's passing over opportunities repeatedly. And some people will look at that situation or the, the rejection as a loss. But I learned later on in life, it's never a loss, it's a lesson. Word. Like that's all it was for me. So whenever I didn't get an opportunity to get a record on somebody like the time we were in LA and we were working with Mary. With Mary, yeah. Uh-huh. We Mary was in the studio with us. We yeah. cut the record with her. Everything, yeah. But it ended up not making an album, but it didn't discourage me. Like we had people that still poured into us because they saw potential, they saw promise. You just gotta stay the course. Absolutely. And that's what we did. And I agree. So how many writers we got in the building? Word. Okay. How many producers we got in the building? Absolutely. See what I'm saying? That's beautiful. So we got writers and producers in the building. So the business of production. Let's go into the business of production. Okay. Then we're gonna then we're gonna tap tack tackle the writing side. The business of production as a producer, what are some of the keys, key elements that you make make sure that you have when you start in your production? Um for me as a musician, my desire and my goal is to be self contain mm-hmm. so for me with production just knowing how to play as much as you possibly can before you start outsourcing because you don't know if the record's gonna get placed and you're just building at this point in time so for me just knowing how to play everything i know how to play almost everything i can play the keyboard i can play the guitar i can play the bass i can play the drums i can program drums all that good stuff so that's one important key element and the key reason why i say that's a key element is because when you produce when you co-producing with people when it's time to handle business you don't know how they're going to react exactly. because people start counting money in their mind because of who the artist is a lot of times if you don't have a single you're going to make money but it's not what you think it's going to be you know especially now with streaming it's ways it used to be nice for us back in the day yeah but streaming changes everything so people will casually forget what the discussion was in the studio when you're co-producing with people. So I will, I, I know this sounds crazy. I will make sure we get all agreements, all splits, taken care of that Up same. Front. Yeah, because you don't want to wait till it's time for the song to get placed and then you try, you arguing over and then it get weird. Yeah, it get, it get messed up. So if, 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 I, if I did drum uh, programming and he did all the, 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 the keyboard, the bass line, all that type of stuff, I would say let's just bust it in half right there on the spot. Let's do 25, 25. 
you know, it's like if you get 50% of the song. And that's just one of the biggest things that I learned from working with you. Like even with now, I just dropped the album on Valentine's Day and working on this album, I had a lot of guest stars on it. And the thing that I was able to do because I learned this from Chad, me and Chad would work together and I would have to call somebody in to play something. I would call my cousin Afton. I would call my little bro, Alex, Ace Boogie on bass. And Chad would say, well, if you ain't got no money to give him, set him up for success. Give him some publishing, give him some writing. Right. And that's how I move now. Like when I'm working with somebody, if I know I ain't got no bread, I, even if I did have bread, I still want to give them an opportunity. Like I'm thinking about your kids' kids. Right. That's how you set people up for success. And I learned that from you. Right. And to me, when you do it that way, it's easy to get collabor collaborators when you do it that way. You understand what I'm saying? So make sure you're sharing in the wealth is what I like to call it. There it is. Because it's extremely important. But make sure you get the business done out the gate. You don't want to wait until the song is placed to try to handle business. Because people will casually forget what they what you guys talked about in the studio that day. And at this point, if you ain't got it on video, it's your word against theirs. So now, you better get this placement on whoever, Drake, let's just say. You better get this placement on Drake. Now they don't want the song because the business ain't right. Because if the business on one song isn't right, I was a part of an album, the Backstreet Boys. Me and Shay, I see Shay back there. And uh, TC, we did a song with the Backstreet Boys. And it came out on their album. Our stuff was straight. We knew what who was getting what percentages and whatnot. But there was a discrepancy with T-Pain and somebody on this same album. And we didn't get paid. Let's say I'm using the wrong year, but let's say if it was two, the year 2000, we didn't get royalty checks until 2005 because until they their dispute is done, nobody on the album get paid. So you don't want to be the hangup because everybody, just like I knew who it was right now, everybody else, it may not, I'm just, I, just, I think it was T-Pain. I don't want to say, I don't want to put him out there. But it was somebody in that era, somebody that was big. It wasn't like uh, like us as like newer writers. Right. And until that dispute is done, you nobody on the album get paid. Same thing happened. I, I remember Teddy Riley talking about it. it happened to him. But guess what? What album happened to him on? The Michael Jackson album. You know how much money was just sitting there? Could you imagine being on Michael Jackson album and waiting right. on your check? You going crazy because you know you're about to get paid something ridiculous. And remember, Teddy Riley did remember the time. So he, he didn't do like just the, the album cuts. He did like the main joint where they stopped television to do a premiere of this song. Magic Johnson in the video. Everybody was in that video. Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy, right? It was by John, directed by John Singleton. John Singleton, right. Yeah. So think about that. And you got a song on this album because somebody didn't handle their business. You know how long it took him to get paid from the album? Nearly 20 years. Can you imagine? Now, mind you, when 20 years come, you go, you acting the fool. You said you, know, you, you can't, you got M's. But can you imagine knowing you got millions sitting and you can't do nothing about it to this to a discrepancy that has nothing to do with you is cleared up? So do not, I'm telling you this, so you do not be the hangup of anybody's project of people getting paid. Because what it will do is, it will, they, that's going to get spread around. And people will not work with you because of that, which rightfully so. I would want to work with you if I was on the album either. You right. know what I'm saying? If you're being shady. Yeah. Exactly. So make sure you handle your business up front because that's the last thing you want to do is get your first, second, or tenth placement and you're the hang up of the entire project. Now, it's probably a little different now because streaming. So they just put the singles out one by one or whatever. So it's a different different ball game. But I just I had to give you all that information because we were out. That actually, I actually was a part of something back then that happened. I wasn't Michael Jack. Backstreet Boys still paid good though. So the Backstreet Boys sold 300 million records. So it was a good, it was still some some great money, especially over the overseas portion of it. So you don't want to you get nothing from international, they call it, or domestic until that is clear. So that's key. So make sure you have your business. So now Sean, yeah. Once once you get into the, the business side of because what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna allow you guys to ask questions as well. Once you get past the business side of, of production. How do you choose when to collaborate and who to collaborate with? Um, well, of course, you call the big guns when, you, when it's a big record, right? That's that's for me. So when I know we got a budget to work with, that's when I'm like, okay, who do I want to work with on this album? Like, ooh, I love to work with Robert Glassworth. So we're going to reach out to Robert Glassworth. You know, so you call the big guns in when you get that, when you get that, you know, that, that, opportunity to get that placement 
because a lot of the times you do a record and it's still kind of like the bones of the record. So right. you still, it's still bells and whistles that you got to have. So that's when you start reaching out to people that you know that's good at what they do. Sometimes you'll call the homie from up to, from around the way who's good at playing keys. Or you call somebody like Robert Glass, or you call somebody like my good friend Omar Edwards, who's the musical director for Jay-Z and Beyonce. Like, you call cats like that. Right. Now, uh, to my songwriters, this, 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 for you, this part is for you guys. Um, as a producer, what do, because every producer looks at something different. Every time I, because I got, we got several producers coming this season, and every producer looks at it differently as a, when they select which writers to work with. And when I'm speaking of which writers to work with, you know there's a project that you get ready to work on. Like I remember, I remember coming, to, we were in Miami, and you were working with Bam. Yep. On some projects, yep. I don't know if it was Tyrese or somebody, but it was it was you guys as producers. Then it was a group of writers there as well at this writing camp. So how do you choose which writers as a producer that you want to work with? What 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 attributes do you look at in writers? Uh, chorus hooks, mm-hmm. like if you can write it, if you can, it, that's the big thing that I look for because I learned that earlier on as a as a songwriter and a producer. Like that's what sells the record, the hook. Like, are they going, you want people to sing that hook when it's done. So if the writer, if they can't like that, that hook, they got that hook, that's hook, line and sinker. That's it. That's what I look for. Who can write a good hook? Cause the verses are easy after you write the hook. Cause you got the concept. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And melodic structure is important as well. Absolutely. I know he's saying who can write a hook. That's a fact, but it's about melodic structure, making sure the, the melodies that you have, uh, I think I heard Rico say this, each part of the song should feel like a hook. That's how, that's what Rico's, the, I work, I've worked with Rico for maybe 15, 20 years now. And he, he fit his, the, the way to win, he says, is to make sure each melody in the verse, the pre-chorus, the chorus, or the, or the bridge feels like a hook as well. Now it's easy. Because back when we was doing music, the songs would be like four minutes. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I looked at a record the other day. It was like, and, and the guy did the verse twice, same verse twice. The song was like two minutes and 15 or 20 seconds. And then they don't. there's no such thing as bridges anymore. No more. You don't, you don't even hear those. And then they'll repeat the, first, the, the verse after the hook again. So they really write one verse and a hook. So you want to make sure, like... I think that was a little Uzi Uzi song. That song, uh, I want to. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that song right there. If you listen to the song, this to this this to the. I think the verse comes the same verse come back to back. Exactly, it's real quick to the point. Right. So, but that's because each part of the song feel like a hook. If you didn't do that long damn part, you wouldn't know which part of the song was what. You know what I'm saying? So that that's his transition, but. The goal is to make it hooky throughout the whole record. And that makes sense because think about it. If you at a record store, I mean, not that they have a lot of them anymore. Right, right. If you talk to somebody like, what's that song? And you you can hum, if you can hum something. The melody. From the, the, exactly. The hook. So if all of them sound like, if, if every section of the song sounds like a hook, somebody can pick up on it and say, oh, yeah, that's a little Uzi Vert song. Like, yeah. Right. So that's the key to make sure, writers, that you're able to... to make your melodics hooky the entire song. That's a, that's a key. And then make sure you got your business taken care of too as writers, because we like to dwell on our producers, because a lot of times the writers don't get uh, production they don't get, fees. Yeah. So talk about that. And they don't get, sometimes they don't get upfront money. The only person I heard, uh, only writer I heard getting the upfront money was Neo. Neo was charging with 30 bands just to, you know, just going to be in there right. There are a lot of, lot of basically, if you're an A-list writer, you can get that. But if you're not no A-list writer, writers ain't getting up front. You know, they're not getting up front money. They're not, you know, you just catching writers and publishing, right? That's, that's exactly, exactly it. So as a writer, if I'm coming in a session with a producer, I'm already negotiating my writer's fee with the producer. You want to know why? <laughs> because he gets a production fee. So what I'm doing is saying, look, I like to get, 2500 to write a song. If Sean's 
production fee is fifteen thousand. When it's time to go to the label and we place the record, he's he controls what what the amount is. So he tells the, the uh, label seventeen five for this record. So he get his fifteen thousand, and I get my twenty five hundred. You see what I'm saying? So you got to make sure as a writer you handle your business out the gate with whoever you're collaborating with, and especially if you just if you just write if you're not co-producing. You want to make sure you had an understanding because nine times out of ten, producers will not pay you out of the fee because they just charge their their fee. So they didn't add your fee into the the uh, fee. You understand what I'm saying? So don't if if I charge ten thousand a track and you don't tell me what your fee is and I charge ten thousand, don't be like, oh, well my two thousand or more my fifteen hundred. Like man, you should have told me that before, so I could have charged the label twelve thousand that way I have room to pay you. You understand what I'm saying? Because you as a writer. You don't recoup the cost. You, you know what I'm saying? Because you didn't get a you didn't get an advance. A production fee is an advance, and it is recoupable. Which means, until that album recoups all the funds that it was spent to make that album, nobody gets paid. Once it goes one dollar over, then people start getting paid. So that means everybody's production fees on the album has to be recouped before you start seeing revenue as a writer. You understand what I'm saying? Not your publishing, but off of the mechanical, off of the sales, all right? But if you don't have the single, the only way you make the money is off the sales or the streams. You get what I'm saying? So you want to negotiate with, with your producer that you're working with, what your fees are out the gate. So if it never recoups, you made something. You get what I'm saying? Y'all feel me on that one? So make sure you handle the business right out the gate in the very beginning. That's extremely important. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and then, Sean, so you transition from being the, a producer and a, a live guitarist to a lot, being able to run shows like you, M, you MD and Mary right now. So let's talk the vein of live uh, production. Okay, live production. This one is very simple. It's almost uh, comparable to being in the studio. Um, he's saying it's simple, y'all, because he's done it before. Not to cut you off. He's saying it's simple because he's done it before. But there was time when he was first starting and he had to learn the ropes. So let's talk about it if somebody's never done it before. You did it for 20 years. So, yeah. Okay. But let's go from the beginning. How you worked into that? Sitting under a lot of musical directors. Adam Blackstone. If y'all know who Adam Blackstone, he's also, uh, he was the musical director for the Super Bowl performance that uh, Dr. Dre. Dr. Dre and Mary J and Eminem and Kendrick did. But sitting under cats like that and, and learning that there are parts to a song that makes a song a song. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite songs to listen to is Through the Fire by Shaka Khan. That guitar solo stands out to me. I can remember exactly where I was when I first heard that song. So when I play that song, whether it's with Shaka Khan or if I'm covering it with somebody, I'm going to nail that guitar solo exactly like the solo was did on the album. That's a part. So you have to come into the into the uh, the situation with that headset like, OK. I'm listening to this record and I want to make sure that what we how we put this show together for a tour or a live performance. I want you to be able to, I want you to be able to hear exactly what it was you heard on the radio or when you streamed the record, or when you downloaded the album. So you study the record. You study it. Listen for the intricate pieces in the record. What is the the drums on example? Biggie's One More Chance. Uh, my wife is irritated with me because I can sit in the car and tell you, I can mimic everything on that record. So when I start producing and I want to do something similar to that Biggie record, I can hear that sugar that go, like that's a part right there. So come in with that mind frame of just knowing the record, wanting to know the record, wanting to understand the record. So when you put the show together, when the concert goer is sitting down in a front and hearing it, everything sounds exactly the way that it sounded when they was listening to it in their car. Absolutely. Now, <clears throat> break down the pieces of the record, because 
they're like in a band you have the drummer you have the drums you have bass you have guitar you have uh three keyboard players one that play specials and specials are specials are like let me see i'll call it i, I call it bells and whistles but just like little subtle nuances that stands out you know what i'm saying like uh I wish I, I'm trying to give. I'm trying to think of an example. Song. Yeah. A song. Uh, Drake's uh, "Baby, You're My Everything." Na, 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 na. That piano. Da, na, na, ding, ding, ding. Like that's that's a special. You know what I'm saying? So it's aside from what the foundation is playing, but it's just one of those. It's it's one of those parts that stand out. And if you went to the concert and you didn't hear it, you'd be like. My man ain't playing that record right. Yeah, right, right. Like this. So you got then you got a foundation and a foundation keyboard player is a person that plays the the melody, mm-hmm. but he's chording with the melody. You know what I'm saying? So it's it, it it's it's the how do I, I'm trying to figure out a good way to describe it, but it's it's basically something that gives that's familiar. And it, it kind of helps bring everything else together. It helps to bring the bass together to the song, the guitar to the song, the drums to the song. Just so yeah. on on Be Happy, Mary J. Blige. Yeah. What's the melody? Um I'm doing on my guitar. Okay. Show me the me- show it to me, my good okay. brother. You hold, uh, yeah, I got you. So <clears throat> Foundation. two different parts that I play and that's what it's about this knowing to keep the foundation player know how to he plays that part and I play my part and that's what make the record come together makes a live whether you in the studio or whether you playing it live got you that makes sense that makes sense all right so now let's, let's keep since since you play for Mary we can we yeah. can stay there so give me what one of the songs you guys may do on tour what is the show us what a special is on now, obviously, you're not playing the keyboard. You're playing the guitar version. Yeah, but so like, let's say, what's a what's a Mary? What's the song y'all? Let me do? Choose, Let me see. Uh, Pick something that everybody know. Y'all know Mary's "Take Me As I Am." Y'all heard that song? So take me. So. Sorry. All right, you getting your tune on? Okay, go ahead. Uh, so it's uh. So a special would be. So that specials would be strings. So the keyboard player will play the string part while foundation and guitar, which is myself, will be playing. So yep. the specials will be playing the melody. Got you. So we got the specials, we got the main foundation. <clears throat> and then I saw part let, let's let's uh what's what's a what's a main uh Mary song the all I really want is to be happy. I'm probably in the wrong key, but yeah. so let's use that song as an example. <clears throat> Your foundation is Special is playing specialists, and that's all the special player is playing. He ain't playing nothing extra. 
It's in the record, so you want to make sure you're nailing that. Foundation is. And I'm playing a lower octave, but the keyboard player, the specialist player, is playing an octave higher. And I'm playing. And when you put it all together, it sounds amazing. I actually got it. Let's, 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 Chris. Pull me up something And I'll there. play it. I'll, I'll play it. He can show you what we're talking about. So that you, you can take it from the... I think the song, first song is... Yeah, uh, no, it's uh, it's the last song of, the, of that medley. So the first song is Real Love. Let's go there. Okay, let's, let's go, go to Real, Real Love. Love. Yep. The, the, very, the, very, the very top of it. Yep. The very top of the whole thing. Yep, now give me some volume, please. So that's specials. Foundation is. I'm going. Specials is. So that's my part. Until we get to the bridge. This is uh, the remix to Love No Limit. So that's the bass that you're hearing. You'll hear when the specials come in, because it'll play. So that's bass and drums. Hear the specials and then me. The whole thing. It's so now you, all part. it seems like it's a whole bunch going on. That's because everybody else is playing the other part. Yep. But you still feel the record. And then obviously you got Mary singing too. So you most people focus on her. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. Yeah. So that and she focused on the music though, just making sure that record is being played right. Exactly. So make sure and I, and this is for even when you're the writer of the song or the producer of the song, when an artist performs your song, you want it to sound like the song y'all written and produced. You know what I'm saying? So the key is to make sure you understand what parts are when you're writing the song. Because how we used to do it, when we would write a song, we would try to think about what it sounded like if the artist was performing. Exactly. Yeah. So that you got to make sure if you're on the production side or the uh, writer side, because the writer side is important because the harmony, well, they don't do harmony much more, much anymore. But even those parts are, uh, are, are special parts of the song. When you're writing a record, like I, I remember my, when, as a vocal producer, a trick I would do if I felt like a lyric wasn't as, as strong as the lyrics prior to it, I would put harmony right there. We would call har harmony ear candy. So we would make it sound good, 
whether it be because the lyric wasn't as strong as the lyrics that came before. You get what I'm saying? Yep. That was like a cheat code that we used to use. Me, Shay, Rico, all of what we do that, we would just throw. People are like, how you, why would you do this there? Well, obviously, the core progression might have to work, but what we would do as writers and vocal producers is we would make sure that if the if we felt the lyric was cool and it wasn't like we made, we put some candy around it. Nowadays, they don't do harmony. They don't even stack. They don't even stack vocals no more. So it's different. That's crazy because yeah. I still stack. But the other thing too, look at it from this standpoint as well. You want to look at it from, from an emotional standpoint too. Again, like think about one of your favorite records that you like to listen to or that you heard. What were you going through when you heard it? How did it make you feel? That's the ideal of when you're doing a record. You want to grab some, you want to grab a human emotion. You want to provoke a human emotion. You know what I'm saying? So when you add ear candy and harmonies and stuff like that, that's to really pull at your heartstrings. You know what I'm saying? Like I hear a lot of people whenever I'm on tour with Mary, they say, I was going through this when I heard the My Life album. You know what I'm saying? And it was so much intricate detail and thought that went into that that record. Every song, like they took their time and crafted each song to pull at your heartstrings. Even, let me see, Jasmine Sullivan. Yep. Well, I'm trying to remember the album before Hotels. Um, uh, I, I'm trying to remember the name of that song, that mascara song. Man, I'll never forget where I was when I heard that song. Just like the lyrical content was amazing. The chord progressions on the record was amazing. And I heard them perform that song at Essence because we did Essence with Mary. And it sounded exactly like the record. And I was like, yeah, these cats get it. That's what it's about. Like when you writing a song, when you putting a song together, the goal is to pull out a person's emotions when you're doing it. You know what I'm saying? That's the that's the objective. That makes sense. <clears throat> now, and all of us have songs like that, right? Like a song, I, re I remember when I was in college, I had just went to college at FAMU. And it, I was, I was, uh, I had just got there and some friends of mine were, were going out. So I said, let me go out with y'all. School just like it was just, school hadn't even started yet. And on our way out to go to, to, go to the club where we were going, we heard on the radio, that, uh, they played it, uh, they, they, they broke in breaking news plane has crashed, blah, 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 blah. Aaliyah was on the plane. Yes, sir. Like, I remember where I was at. I could see my, what I had on and everything. And then right after they did that, they played Rock the Boat because she, she, she shot the video, the video and it was the plane mm -hmm. crashed when they were leaving from finishing shooting the video. So obviously that was the last video. But I remember everything. So anytime I hear Rock the Boat, I remember me, 19, going in college, 18 years old, going to college. So now, mind you, that wasn't the writer's intent. The writer's intent to provoke emotion, but the the uh, the event that occurred when I heard that song, it yeah. just stuck with me. You know what I'm saying? It's just certain songs that'll stick with you. So you want to make sure that you are a part of those moments in people's lives. Not saying the bad ones, but the, every every part, you know, whatever, Absolutely. good yeah. or bad. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So I think that's extremely important that you brought up yeah. the invoking of emotions. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's like David Foster, a great producer. You know who David oh, Foster is. Of course, is. I know David Foster. If you know who Earth, Wind, and Fire is, David Foster was the guy that wrote After the Love is Gone. That's him on piano. Like, that dude provoked emotion, like, for real. Yep. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Crazy, right? Yes. He wrote After the Love is Gone. Like, that's one of my favorite producers. Like, that cat knew exactly. He he had the cheat code for real. Like, seriously. That makes sense. And then it, there's another. She said, I heard somebody said, the white dude, the white dude. Have y'all heard his name before? Rod Temperton? Y'all heard that before? This is a white dude from London. He was in a band called Heat Wave. Heat Wave. And he, he was one of the main producers on a Thriller album. Yes. Like, he was one of the main ones for that. And... and and let's since we at production, let's talk. My favorite producer in the whole world, Quincy, Quincy Jones. Jones. Yeah, of course. So Quincy Jones, to me, is one of the greatest producers. Ask me how many songs he played on on the Michael Jackson album. Zero. 
He didn't play one instrument on that whole album. But he knew how to put the people together. He knew how to put the pieces together. He his, had us. He had Hitman for real. His production would be like this: He would get on on his uh, phone and say, "Hey, Sean, what you got going on? I need you to come to the studio." Okay, so I got the coldest guitar player. Hey, hey, Wesley McVicker, what you got going on? I got the coldest drummer. Hey, Afton Johnson, what you got going on? I got the coldest bass player. So he'd get on the phone and call all the cold people. Then he'd be like, hey, Clayton, what you doing? I need you to come write some hooks. You know what I'm saying? Hey, Lachey, what you doing? I need you to come write and sing some backgrounds. Like, that's what that's what Quincy Jones would do. And then you got all this great all-star talent in one facility. Shay and Clayton over there writing. Sean and them over there producing. And then we swapping back and forth what's going on. Because people think producing is making the beat. There's a difference between a beat maker and, and a producer. Producer, producer, over, about producer oversees the entire project. That's what a producer does. Don't get it twisted. I used to call myself a producer before I was a producer because I was a beat maker. And that's that's what that name was so loosely thrown around. Yes. But taking out the time to really learn what it was, Warren Campbell, I learned that from Warren Campbell. Right. A producer oversees the entire record. He's looking at everything the vocal arrangement the lyrical content the the musicianship all of that even so down to mastering. mixing and mastering exactly yeah and that's how i used to produce I, I would never try to touch nothing i got all the coldest cats in the world like i remember i can't remember what song it was but we did something and we had to put a guitar on it. so i called sean i knew what i wanted to play on the guitar but i can't play the guitar so i said bro what you doing can you come by the lab i come by in a couple hours he come by i would literally sing to him what i want and I would narrow, narrow. And he would do it better than I could sing it, obviously, because that's what he do. You know what I'm saying? That's what he does. So he is, I sing, I want this, and then on this part, I want to go, whatever, whatever, I'll give a little part. And he would say, well, it, it'll sound better if you did it this way. Okay, cool. That's why, that's why <laughs> I got you. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, that's what producing, that's how we produced records back in the Because everybody around me, I was smart. I was the dumbest person in the room, but the smartest <laughs> at the same time. Because what I did was I went and got a bunch of people that was way better than me. I could never sing better than Shay. If I was tried, I couldn't. Which means I couldn't come up better than with better melodies than her. But I know if I know how to structure it though, so it wouldn't be too much so that the average person could get. You see what I'm saying? You had to you you was Quincy Jones before you knew what Quincy Jones did. Did, right. Yeah. So I, I would I would just get the best of what you know, whoever it would be. And I would just say, it need to feel like this, or I need to do it like this. Yeah, I write some lyrics and stuff too, but why would I do the parts that somebody else was better than me at? Ain't no ego when we're trying to make a hit record. I remember us writing and doing a song, Acapella, Something Missing for Brandy. Right? Yeah, dude, yes. I was I, just about to talk about I that. I remember vividly, Shay, had, Shay was like the Steph Curry shoot from half court. Shout out to no, Shay. No faster than we could figure out what the melody was. She would have a lyric like that. I'd be like, what is going on? Like, it was like ridiculous. She like, I got the first verse. I'm like, all right, let's hear it. She's saying, I'm like, damn, we literally five minutes into the song, but it, you got to know who got the hot hand. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's the key, knowing who should have the ball at the right time. I'm using, uh, obviously, Because at the end of the day, everybody wins. Everybody on the team wins. Facts. And, that, and that's, I, I, I really, and I'm glad, I'm actually glad you brought your guitar to kind of give examples of what we're talking about. Because a lot of times, you have a conversation, but there is no demonstration to the conversation. So you're missing a piece. You can, you can visualize it, but it's nothing like seeing it face to face. So even you as an artist or you as a writer or you as a producer, you can say, you can literally take the things that he would talk about, the specials, the this and the that's, and apply it to what you do in the studio yourself. Mm -hmm. Just And you can pick out those parts. Let's say if, you just, if you're writing and a producer, you can pick out where these things need to be in the song to help elevate the record. Because now you went from being a writer to a co-producer. Now you're sharing in the production. You see what I'm saying? Now when it's time for that song to get placed, you get points and everything like the producer's getting. It, and another thing, another thing, if you're writing the song and you're coming up with the arrangement and you produce the vo vocal producer, you're a producer. When I would vocal produce, I would get paid as a producer because I was vocal producing. So you that a lot of times we didn't know this back in the day. But I can name you some vocal producers that made a lot. Kook Harrell made a lot of money just vocal producing songs. Dream write it, Tricky and produce it. He would cut the he would cut the vocals with the artists and vocal produce the song. He would get published in like he wrote the song too. 
Because his part was just, if, if you have a terrible vocal producer on your song, it's over with for your song. It's a rap. So they, these elements are extremely important. And I want to make sure we touched on them because a lot of times people, our, our Milwaukee producers and songwriters don't know the elements and the things that are revenue based for you. Like there are, there are so many streams of revenue in writing music and producing music. But if you don't know what those revenue streams are, you'll overlook them. And nobody's going to tell you because who want to spend extra money? Or who want to give away extra publishing? You understand what I'm saying? So it's extremely important that you kind of like take these things in. You know what I mean? Knowledge is power for real. Like knowing that it changes the game for you. Like it really opens up a door for you to have that knowledge. And it's, I learned earlier, uh, learned earlier on in my career from our tour manager, Huggy, who's now the tour manager for Usher right now. There's no such thing as a dumb question. He said, really, like, truthfully, a dumb question is a question that you don't ask. So ask. Even if it means you being anal, it to them, just like, you, the goal is to get as much understanding as you possibly can. So nothing gets weird with a song or with a tour. You know, you don't want anything to get weird. There needs to be clarification at all times. That's a fact. And I, I seen Huggy, too. When we're out there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, that you are in this element of your as an artist, producer, writer, but then on the the, the MD side yeah. element. How has that changed? That dynamic changed the way you approach writing and producing now. Um, because I get a, the opportunity to live inside the head of the artist. I give you an example. So we just did a show, a private show in uh, Santa Barbara, California, Wednesday with Mary and Nas was doing a song with us. We did Love Is All We Need. So for Soundcheck, we ran the stuff with Mary and then Nas came and I got a chance to really sit down with Nas and kind of walk him through. But then as I was walking him through where we come in at because we had to shorten the song, he was sharing with me what he wanted in Pro Tools. What it, like what parts of the song exactly. is that he wanted exactly so i got a chance to live in his head in that sense which then made me think about like okay man so when i'm in the studio and i'm cutting a record let me take that same process and apply it apply it to a song that i'm doing which i did i did a record today and i remember what nas was telling me just certain certain things like example for like Ear candy for BGVs, right? Mm -hmm. The ad BGVs background, background vocals. vocals. I'm sorry. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I took what what Nas taught me as far as like ad libs and things like that, and I I added it to what I was doing to a record I did. So yeah, that worked out perfect. So I'm glad you asked that question. This is your boy Chaz C. Noble, the creator and host of Amplifier Community Connection. Amplifier is a free artist development program powered by Radio Milwaukee. Each episode is filmed and recorded in front of a live studio audience at Radio Milwaukee Studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Stay connected with Amplifier by registering for our free events or watch us live on Facebook at AmpMKE. You can also follow us on Instagram at AmpMKE as well. Thank you for listening and remember, dreams never expire.